dear friends. Welcome back to the Rock Paper Bitcoin Podcast. It's me, your best friend, Business Cat. I'm so happy you're back. In this episode, you know, we're off the map now, and we talk about it. What else do we talk about? We talk about the excellent piece by Axiom Capital's Orange is the New Green. We talk about drawdowns in the uh, bull versus bear markets. It was a fun conversation. If you like our content and would like to support the show, you can listen using any podcasting 2.0 enabled app. I personally use Fountain, but uh, hey, you can use whatever podcasting 2.0 app you want. That's the beauty of an open standard. If you're a Bitcoin miner and you're feeling generous, you can support us by slicing off a bit of that hash power and sending it to us using any Lincoin Stratum address. Use our show's username, RockPaperBitcoin, and I'll put the connection details in the show notes. Finally, dear listener, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to us. Let's get into it. Good morning. Hey. Hey, man. How have you been? Pretty good. It's, um, <clears throat> I'm not going to impose myself on all the listeners, but waiting two weeks to do this is definitely, uh, you know, it's a challenge. And now that I'm here, it's like, oh my God, here, it's all sort of rushing down on me. want to like, I want to like give the whole, all the last two weeks back in one breath. Yeah. It's forced <laughs> me to like line up in my brain more precisely. Like what, what are we going to talk about this week? Cause it's, yeah, it's a uh, every other week now instead of every week. I actually have notes for the first time. Oh, beautiful. Okay. <laughs> just, you know, just in case. And normally it's like I sent you, uh, normally I send you a, you know, a four foot wall of scrolling telegram bullets. It, it was very concise <laughs> this time. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one thing I'll say is, um, I want to do a shout out to um, a group of people I've been I've started to shout out on this podcast, but it's something like this called the Thursday Zoom, and it's like it's keeping me going. Um, you know, no matter who needs time, right? No matter what the meetup schedules are, this Thursday Zoom, um, I highly highly recommend you guys. We will put it. I will put like the link in the show notes, but like. If anybody wants to join it, I don't, I, my sense is no, none of you feel comfortable hopping on just cold clicking the link. So DM me. And, um, if you want to get on, you know, if you want to join, me about the, what is this Thursday, D, uh, group zoom call you're on? Tell me about it. So there is a member of my, of the, there's a member of the Phoenixville meetup. This is a guy I met because he used to run a meetup locally here that, um, lost its sight and went into the ether but uh, when I met him I um, he basically told me about his Thursday Zoom and I got on and the first time I got on he basically did his 101 for noobs and it blew it like it blew me away how good it was and so I've always viewed him as really like an elite Bitcoin educator who is maybe the best kept secret on earth and when I had my inaugural Phoenixville meetup, I, um, you know, I, I knew he would come, but I asked if he'd be willing to give that presentation for the first time. And like, you know, like 
this was the, the first meetup. Like my family came, my dog came, you know, my co-organizer had his family and his kids. It was like everybody came. And, um, the people who like had nothing to do with Bitcoin were all saying that dude was awesome. Oh, so it was a perfect audience for a one-on-one level discussion. Okay. Like, I really, like, I really wanted, um, so leading up to that first meetup, people had been texting me, oh, you know, I'm take, is it okay if I bring my no coiner friends? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but I started feeling this pressure to create, um, you know, to create an environment that, would be successful for these people, right? Because when you bring, you know, you bring somebody in your life to a meetup, um, you know, it's hard to necessarily predict what the outcome is going to be when they ask an innocent question, <laughs> right? And also, it's like you vouching, you bringing new people in and vouching like this meetup is worth attending, and then going to a super lame one that sucks. So yeah, it's, it's or always just, a roll of the dice. It's either super lame or super toxic. I mean, yeah. some of those th- some of those property, you know, this could be awesome too. Or you run into like, somebody like me and I start talking about the apocalypse, and uh, I, <laughs> I only teach well, the four hundred and five hundred level courses. The one hundred ones are difficult for me at this point. Your one hundred one is like. Dude, open up your phone and you're getting sats. <laughs> that's your 101. That's yeah. what I. That's what I've observed at meetups with no corners. Okay? That's the yeah. That's that's easy. <laughs> but um, so I can call him. His name is Paul. <laughs> He's the dude. Is dude rocks. So he runs this Thursday Zoom like faithfully. Dude is always on it. Um, and when there are not noobs, there's a core group of people that. I have come to really, the same way I came to love you guys in Central PA, I've come to love these guys just being able to talk about Bitcoin for a few hours, right? And um, now it's like every week, there's always something to talk about. And I just wanted to open it up because I, 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 I asked Paul a couple of weeks ago, I said, is it all right if I open it up on like the podcast? And he said, absolutely. So I just... I'm taking Beautiful. the liberty again. The social layer emphasize. of Bitcoin is like, it's like a big Venn diagram of all these different circles of groups that are overlapping here and there. That's, that's really awesome. Um, and, and right for like here in the center of the state. Yeah. We don't, we haven't been meeting super frequently, like maybe about once a month. So yeah. for people that want a, a higher cadence than that, that's a super useful resource to have a weekly zoom call to jump on. It's yeah, it's great. And then the thing is the fallback if noobs do come is there is an like just an exceptional intro that he has been crafting and performing for years. That was, uh, I, there was a period when we were doing zoom calls. I did like four zoom calls in a row back during the height of COVID. And it's like, I was getting people from all over the world attending them. So, I mean, it's just not, not just locals, but right. Right. And so there's people from all over the country that come onto this particular zoom. Very cool. There's some local, right? Naturally. Well, I mean, so in the two weeks since we've been talking, man, the world is running and moving at a breakneck pace, it seems. It is. Before I get into the world, right, and what's happening right now, I did want to, let's just jump right in to, like, my main topic I wanted to get to. Sure. Um, the, so I'm going to start this by saying that my number one, I'm going to call this my number one source of signal in the world. My number one source of signal in the world is any paper that gets released by either Alan Farrington himself. I was going to guess Alan Farrington, yeah. Because right. I talked about Only the Strong Survive and the life-changing nature of that paper last week. I loved but, his uh, review of the Barbie movie. 
Yeah, right. So, I mean, it's the great thing about Alan is that he can't help himself. Like, yeah. he is always working and pushing it, but then he has this idea about something he wants to say about the Barbie movie, and that is it. He is gone. He'll spend, for however long it takes, he'll spend three days writing it, <laughs> editing it. He's one of those people who it. has internalized the concept of, oh, well, if slaves could work 24 hours a day, 365, or not 24 hours, but if, if slaves yeah. worked X amount, it's like, I can work that amount too, and he just does it for himself. So this paper was released by his company, Axiom BTC. It was not written by him. It was written by a man named, uh, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, Theo Magane. Theo Magine. Sounds good to me. Um, this, we have to link to the show notes. Um, I so, so, so recommend the paper. What The, the one nugget I'm going to discuss is actually just uh, almost a distraction, but it, um, I'm going to tell you why it's on my mind right now. Um, the paper itself, I'll just overview it. it the high-level concept of the paper is talking about potentially building money market funds around Bitcoin, which... Most of you guys who I know listen to the show automatically will react and say, that sounds like a shitcoin project. And that's why the paper, it's like only the strong survive is almost a defense and a total rebuke of shitcoins as well. It defends the ideas worth defending and rebukes the basically the outcomes that are doomed because of the stupid token, right? This is, I'd say, a similar spirit. Um, and... Um, Reason I'm gonna the reason I'm talking about it now is because we on this show have discussed the UK pension bailout in the past. I really started getting into it in episode two. Root causes. Well done, great name, business cat. Thank um, you. And that has morphed into this these ideas like it's morphed with the news of what BlackRock is doing and more morphed into idea they were the principal involved in that bailout. And now that they've done a heel turn on Bitcoin, that has, for me, in that context, led to certain conclusions. You can all re- you can all listen to the episode. Um, I feel like it's called BlackRock's plan or what BlackRock is up to. Um, BlackRock's Bitcoin plan, I believe it is. BlackRock's Bitcoin plan, right now. This paper is almost like it's almost like they are repeat. They, they're almost saying the same thing I'm saying in another language. That's why it's so fascinating. This idea of the money market fund is, it's uh, it's linked to this core idea that bonds are not a risk-free asset. They're not the risk-free asset, and maybe there, you know, not maybe there is no risk-free asset, but the lowest risk asset there is is Bitcoin. Right, um, and that is kind of undisputable at this point, without any counterparty risk and without any um, monetary policy risk, right? Counterparty risk with monetary, you know, removing counterparty risk at the expense of monetary policy is pointless, right? It's like, here, I'm going to keep my word, but here's... But we're going to destroy the money, But I'm yeah. going to give you, I'm going to pay you back in monopoly money, right? Yeah. Just it's like, it's so, it, it's important to link those things. Um, you have to have both, not just one. The first paragraph of this paper closed a loop on the UK pension bailout that I did not understand. And since we've been talking about it... I want to make. I want to do that here. I want to close this loop. Sure. Of exp- really explaining, actually, what the hell happened. Okay. And I've, I've toured this for the last two weeks enough that I think we can. I think we can do it. Let's do it. Okay. 
So you guys remember last year, almost 53 weeks ago, um, there was a um, UK guilt rose by 100 bips overnight, and the UK Bank of England, sorry, the Bank of England decided to write a check for sixty billion dollars. I remember Bitcoiners tweeting about how the gilt market was trading like sh a shitcoin. Yep. So, what caused? So, and then we, you know, we've talked about it on the show. This is related to um, what we've talked about was the fact that um, UK pension plans adopted a, I'll say, a strategy called liability-driven investing um, ten to fifteen years ago. Something that I was part of really championing and engineering in the early 2000s and really tried to get this going in the U.S., um, failed to do so, and changed careers <laughs> afterwards. But, but they then, adopted it. But, th but in the U.K., so I could get, you know, one other, you know, maybe some other time I can get into why it didn't go down in the U.S., but did in the UK, but it is related to fi how financial reporting is done in respective countries and the incentives, you know, the incentives involved. Okay, um, it was huge in the UK. You know, very widespread. So what is it? What I mean, what was it? This is something we've discussed. It was basically, you know, essentially you take your sixty forty portfolio, but instead of that sixty percent, instead of that forty percent in. Um, Lehman Ag targeted bonds, i.e. short dated, not too short dated, but like Lehman Ag has a duration, targets a duration of like five years or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So instead instead of having, and now it's bar cap ag, right? But back in, back, it's it, people still call it the Lehman Ag. <laughs> the, the Lehman Ag is the bond, in, is the S&P analog in the bond world. So okay. for, for people that the 60, 40 is 60 stocks, 40 yeah. bonds, 60 stocks, 40 bonds. And again, Lehman accident is the Lehman aggregate. Um, it's, it's a way of investing in the bond market. It's an S and P type of index that everybody recognizes tracks the bond world. Right. But in the, but in the liability driven space, that short duration was insufficient to cover liability changes. Right. And so okay. you want, you had to go longer, right? So in the practice of LDI was that you would use, you would kick those bonds out and use long duration bonds. And if, even if that wasn't sufficient, you would leverage more with swaps to gain more duration. But the purpose but was- so, so LDI was manipulating the 40% side of the 60-40 per, uh, portfolio too. Yeah. And it, so like the 40% in theory is like, that's your safety net in case the 60% messes up. You have that 40% as a safety. And, but for LDI, they're like, you know, let's take that 40 and get a little bit more return out of it. Well, yeah, it's more than that, though, because when you're underfunded, you actually need the 60% to catch up. So there is a bit of an optimization that needs this quote-unquote growth, even though, you know, the idea, a financial engineer would say the expected rate of growth is the risk-free rate, not your idea of what equities have done over the last 30 years but okay so they, they adopted ldi they adopted this practice and what it and and they're just just the practice wasn't take your 40 percent and put it in long bonds there is a first principles approach of doing an optimization but instead of optimizing strictly on what gives you the best yield you're optimizing on what minimizes the overall volatility of the pension system and it turned out miraculously that you know substituting the bonds, long bonds for shorter bonds, 
did the trick, right? So, well, it did the trick until the central bank did, marched everybody out and shot the banks in the head. It did the trick. Well, hold on, but then we're gonna get to why that happened. Okay. Okay. So, it's a that what happened was something. A state change took place between. But anyway, for, for a while, between, it, it, it did the trick. It did the trick at, for that model. That model did not assume um, what I'm about to describe, which is an insane, um, I would say an insane, um, corrupt, <laughs> corrupt activity that kind of explains to me the way why people talk about that, why people talked about it the way they did. So if you guys remember in that episode too, I was like, I don't agree with how people are discussing this problem. I do remember right? you they're saying forgetting, that. They're forgetting the fact that these assets existed because to track a liability. Okay. So now, what, I, what have I discovered? Right. What have I now discovered? What, I've, what I have discovered may not shock anybody, but it shocked me. I'm still shocked by it. I'm still processing it. Okay. The companies that were now, now had long bonds in their plans and had a lot of unrealized gains from the many years of rates going straight down, right? It turns out that, um, I'm sorry if I sound naive by being surprised by this, but um, here it goes. It turns out that they, these companies were borrowing those gains to fund their operations. Aha, okay. okay. Posting those bonds as collateral. Mm-hmm. So analogously to one of us where we invest we we bought a bitcoin at 5000 it went up to 68000 and we decided we needed 10000 to buy a car so but we didn't want to sell it so we borrowed against it and posted those sats as collateral right that's what these companies were doing to fund their operation mm-hmm. with right? the assumption that the bond market would continue going down forever by the way this act in and of itself is unbelievably corrupt and yeah that sounds illegal this sounds like the yeah <laughs> i'm what i how i've been discussing it with my peers is i'm old enough to remember when this would be called pilfering the pension mm. raiding the pension a company is raiding its pension because it can't afford its own operations it's just literally pilfering you know it's just pilfering the pension, which is essentially what it did. That, those gains were not there for operations. Those gains were there to pay out the to, liabilities of the to fund. To protect the liability. Yes, yeah. that's why they were there. Okay. So now here, let's get to the little, let's get to the mechanics of the hundred bit guilt, guilt raise, right? So as you might as might, might imagine, in 2022, when rates started rising, right, the value of that collateral decreased to the point where it was being margin called. And so the threat was that all of these pension plans at the same time were going to get mass liquidated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If it was, let's say it was 60-40, right? And that, that 40%, because it went up in value by so much, maybe it was 50%, something like, you know, who, you know, it was, you know, between 40 and 50% of the value of that. It was about to basically not, you know, not just erode, but the, the bonds themselves were going to be liquidated for margin calls. Yeah. Right. They're about to take a 50%, 40 to 50% haircut. So um, the biggest investment manager, not the only one, but the biggest, by far the biggest one was BlackRock. And so they were selling companies' assets. They were selling like the assets they could sell. They were selling, or they were selling bonds out of a different, 
program, right? They were selling gilts out of a different or out of a different program that they manage to raise the cash to meet the collateral to meet the margin calls, mm. right? And that selling so fast is what led the gilt. In, in an illiquid market, they they on a dumped. Saturday night, basically, if I recall, right? It wasn't even, like I'm pretty sure it was one of those. It wasn't like a work day where markets were even open where they had to do this. Hmm. Which is again one of the points made in the paper "Orange Is the New Green," which is one 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 of the you know Bitcoin in a money market fund. It operates twenty four seven, three sixty five. It's such a different. You know, when, from a risk perspective, right? So you have counterparty risk, you have monetary policy risk, you also have market operation risk that you, doesn't exist. So you, here you have, in, you know, what BlackRock selling gilts, and basically then the UK, the Bank of England, crying uncle, saying, "Okay, this is this is ridiculous." And so that that sixty billion dollars that they um, they basically said, "We got this." Okay, we <laughs> we will backstop all of these losses. Not not unlike what happened in the U.S. five months later with the bank term funding program. But the bank term funding program is better. <laughs> it's not only, well, so something also I don't hear people talking about is the bank, fund, bank term funding program has now used about $120 billion. Hmm. So they have essentially doubled what the Bank of England did in terms of backstopping the long bond market. Right. So, so BlackRock bail is it because of what they did. They they stopped the run on the gilt market. Is that what they did? No, they caused it. They they caused they it. Caused but it. I mean, the Bank of England then stopped the bleeding. By but so, I mean, I don't think could they the covered Bank of the margin. Bank of England covered the margin calls basically. Okay, so basically, the Bank of BlackRock came up to the window and said, "Hey, we have these transactions we want to do," and the BOE stepped in. It's like, okay, we'll buy them all. That's what happened. They basically said, "Stop selling." We will cover the margin. So in other words, you do not. We will cover these margin calls. Yeah. Please stop selling our gilts. Stop selling our shit. <laughs> right. If BlackRock Black was kind of acting faithfully to the plans and its fiduciary duty and saying we have to do what we have to do to make sure they don't get liquidated, and the Bank of England said, "Please stop. You're killing us. You're killing like, me." The entire <laughs> planet, from like the central bank down to like. Uh, uh, na- national banks down to regional banks down to individual levels. There's a, everybody is scrambling for liquidity right now, and as as the interest rates go up, everybody's scrambling to have to find and hold on to what cash they have to spend. So, like as the war, so moving into the Bitcoin world, where BlackRock has the uh, BlackRock is going to replace the bond market with a Bitcoin, with a uh, Bitcoin base. It's like they're gonna need liquidity for that. So, when it comes down to it. Like if BlackRock was selling was selling other assets for liquidity in order to purchase the resources they need for their Bitcoin backed bond, like are, who are they going to come like are, like when the banks come and say hey please stop selling, but BlackRock we want to continue existing like which side are they going to come down on? So th- this is why I started this conversation to begin with, right? Because I think it's important to understand BlackRock's motives. Are we having right. network? Are we having network issues? I just noticed a little delay, so you guys might be hearing a small delay. I All turned right. my cam off. That's why I did that. All right, anyway, continue. So, it, you know, I think the average common guy on Bitcoin Twitter still thinks that BlackRock is in it for NGU, right? But they are. But they'll, you know, they'll capitulate 
to whatever the state wants them to do, ultimately. And I think I think they will capitulate, but they're not thinking of them as an NGU is kind of like it's kind of like thinking of a country at war, not realizing they're defending their own territory. Right. You know, there's a difference in how far a group of people will go to take over someone else's territory versus versus defending defending their own. Right. Mm -hmm. So I believe that understanding BlackRock's motives helps to identify them as actually somebody defending their own territory and not just being an expansionist. And And like you say, they'll capitulate. Like, of course, they'll capitulate. Like they will go further. They will go with the government's rules. Yes, but they're going to go further than people realize. And they don't really actually care. I don't think they care about Bitcoin. I, what I think, again, so I'll go back. Why, why do I think, I'm going to reiterate BlackRock's case, is that they just they view bonds as shit. They want out, right? And they understand enough about Bitcoin to actually think that it's a, Bitcoin is a means, a way for them to do that. Um, Bitcoin is something they could substitute for bonds as the quote-unquote riskless asset. Yeah, it's a new base-level riskless asset. But this is like existential because the um, this issue with the margin calls, right? Guess what? You know, BlackRock doesn't have to destroy the Bitcoin market to make margin calls. BlackRock has a perfect hedge that's waiting to be approved. <laughs> True. You see what I'm saying? So, like, you know, hedging disintermediation risk in the bond market is actually one of the hardest things in the world. If you're like, um, if you are at all have any exposure to asset liability management and understanding that, you know, when you have to sell bonds, when rates are going up, you're selling them at the worst, you know, you're selling, you're always selling them at a loss to replace your hedge. And it's, it's, that's, it's called disintermediation risk. You ne- you know you never want to you never want to sell in that situation, but you yeah right. But I mean, it, when it comes down to it, you need liquidity. Agree, but what I'm saying is BlackRock. What what I'd say the genius and what BlackRock has done, if I'm right, if this is their cause, is that they've created now. Not only can they kick bonds out and put Bitcoin in, but they've invented they've done so. They've invented a perfect hedge, assuming that the FASB rules go through, which we already know they have, right? After that, you know, right? So the FASB rules in place, the marking to market, the ETF is going to match the price of Bitcoin in, their, in all their pensions. And so any kind of collateralization subject to liquidation, they can run a perfect hedge on with their ETF. Yeah, and because of Bitcoin special characteristics, uh, like you can run a window that allows redemption like that much much easier but, than you can like a gold window or something like that. It's not going to require like the, it's not going to require selling all the bitcoin to to avoid the liquidation or anything like that. Look, the presence of BlackRock is going to create volatility in, in XBTUSD. We all should understand this, right? You don't get you don't get the NGU with also out the NG NG flopping around a lot more. Yeah. Volatility. Right? It's of course, of course, it's the same way the presence of Every institution that's ever entered Bitcoin, right, has created volatility. Every single one, right? Yeah, and I'll tell you, Bitcoin. Whenever Bitcoin makes big moves, it's like it's slowly. You can see those like wedges coming together as the volatility decreases and decreases and decreases until just something snaps. So with yeah, BlackRock at the window, the question, yeah, how how far can that snap go? 
Well, actually, no, I think it's better. It's going to be better overall for the system. Why? Well, first of all, just think about what happens if really the biggest player in the bond market isn't essentially re-upping their position in bonds. Well, I, I, for the central bank's sake, I would hope that another buyer is going to step in and replace that liquidity and that buying pressure, but I doubt it. The greater fool theory is, I mean, BlackRock really threatens it. Like we've, I've said this in the past here too, right? Like it's one thing you might have to wait for a hundred million people to figure out how fucked fiat is, or maybe it's one BlackRock, you know? Right. Yeah. How many Michael Saylors can you fit inside Bitcoin kind of idea? As, as you know, we're not pretending BlackRock and I are friends here, but this is the physics it will accelerate the um, downfall of fiat because they are not the source of funding is always the flight to quality. Hmm. Right. So when, you know, didn't you see the article? This is amazing. I mean, I won't gonna, I'm not going to call it an article. I'm just going to call it a headline, a clickbait headline, but it's still indicative. Um, it said something, it was something to the effect that um, only a, like a 30% downturn in the S&P can save the bond markets. Right. Did I, I, did, I did see that headline. I mean, this is an amazing thinking now where the map becomes the territory, right? Where, like, this is this idea that the only value the bond, that bonds even have today is this fiction that they are the landing spot in a flight to quality. Right, yeah. Pe- people thinking that the bond... The assumption that the bond market is the the ultimate safe asset is not understanding the problem. Yeah, and I'm really sorry, guys. I don't. I, I do not intend to run a, like a macro think boy podcast here, but this <laughs> is like you know, this is a very specific issue that has tentacles, and I want to. Co- I just want to make sure we cover them here, right? So the so the the Bank of England cried uncle to as the BlackRock was. Yeah. Was uh, twisting their twisting their knobs. So right now, right now we have Metro Bank, which is crying uncle. Like, do you? It, what do you predict there? Do you think they're okay. going to save them? No. So this is now the important postscript. There's two important postscripts. Okay. Number one, if you didn't get in last year, you're fucked. You're never getting a ballot. I, it's my opinion. UK had one bullet. They used it. They're not going to do it again. Yeah. Okay. So that's first thing. So Metro Bank is some piddly shit bank that you know wasn't good enough to even probably they probably aren't part of the blackrock legal and general schroeder's uh complex that was covered under this bailout right Mm -hmm. so now they're getting you know i don't think the bank the bank of england couldn't afford to do what it did last year they certainly can't afford to do it now that rates are even higher have returned and higher than last year right so that that's it but the more important question Right. More important question is who else is sitting on collateral that's exposed to this rate rise? Right. This is like who is swimming with who else had their hand in their pension cookie jar and is swimming without underwear. So let me make let me my assumption would be all of them. (laughs) All of them are exposed. That's why I want to have this conversation. So remember the first thing I said? The U.S. did not adopt LDI. Right. So guess what? There's no gains. There were no gains to pilfer. 
Right. Well, that's, I would say that's the difference. So the U.S. has the reserve currency status, whereas yep. the Bank so, of England doesn't. So that's a very that's a astute point. And so what 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 that points to? This is a function of the Cantillon effect, right? We have sort of we own the Cantillon effect. Yes. We did not need. You know, we don't need. <laughs> you know, maybe look, maybe invisibly, the reason the incentives in our financial accounting. Um, were so suited for companies to reject this practice to begin with was that we just know we don't need it anyway. We, right. We have other ways to cheat. We don't need to cheat that way. That's correct. So the U.S. did not... Now, I work for a company that has a huge long bond portfolio that had massive, massive unrealized gains, and we never borrowed on it, right? So it's just one of those things that it's also... We have a value. It's a different value in the U.S. like that... Um, there are certain rules. I understand that everything's corrupt and everything's corruptible, but we're not poor enough that we had that we're just not strapped enough that we had to go there. <laughs> right. right. That that's the bottom line. And the the U.S. is just we are in such an advantageous position, but good, so but who is not in an advantageous position, and who definitely was in the long bond game long before the U.K. was? Who? Japan. Ah. Ah uh, yep. yes, they've been, they've been buying our treasuries for decades. Right. So Japan is like, um, you know, if, you know, my, if uh, MicroStrategy has a cost basis of like twenty seven thousand because of when they got in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Japan has a cost basis of like ten thousand probably because of when they, you know, in a, in a Bitcoin analog context. Back Japan started this practice of using long bonds and yield curve control back when rates were seven eight percent. Right. Okay, so they have a long, in other words, the the rise in treasury rates, the rapid rise in treasury rates definitely hurt them, and it definitely kicked the leg out from under them. Well, just, just to put that in context for people, like, when, when what year, like, well, that was the 80s when the Bank of Japan started doing yield curve control? The 90s? I'm going to say early 90s, and um, something like 92-ish. Yeah, and, they, is, and they've never stopped. They, they have been doing yield curve control on a periodic basis ever since. Yeah, up until like three weeks ago. Right. <laughs> you know? Right, and that it spiked up, and the question is, was that that buying that off, that that's wick back down, was that them intervening again? Yeah, I mean, it feels that way. But the bottom line is, the question is, at what what is the critical point where the devaluation, right, due to the rate rise, right, the deva- what, at what point do they get devalued so much that it gets into... England 2022 territory where they're the margin calls are coming yeah and they can't afford to um, so they can't afford to um, really do anything about it because they blew their nut on the yield curve control this whole time so this is the conversation actually it's so great man I'm not I don't want to drop names but in in my safe telegram um, I'm able to actually ask these questions to Alan Farrington and Theo Magine um and really, the answer is nobody really knows what's going to happen. And that's the bottom line, right? Nobody, we can't even pretend to know. Like, I know we all assume there'll be a bailout, right? But nobody, uh, you know, in the context of, like, we also lost the Speaker of the House for the first yeah, time. Yeah, I was just going to say, this <laughs> right? is, that's really poignant. Nobody knows. I've, been, I've really been feeling, I mean, since, yeah, since the Speakership was vacated, um, like, we're in uncharted territories right now. We're in uncharted waters. Uh, we don't know where the rocks are. We don't, we don't know, like, where the islands are, where the storms are. Like, we, we, we've never been where we are before on multiple fronts. It's true. I, I'm thinking of the old meme, always have been. 
right? Always have been. We well, really always have been in uncharted territory. And we're like, I mean, sometimes that gets used as a psyop, right? To be like, oh, you know, everything's changing and, you know, the gaslight us. But the reality is things are, you can clearly see that's a spring that's come loose, right? Having a political outcome like what we saw last week with the speaker, I think is a sign of, you know, that's definitely a signal. I mean, <laughs> it feels like it feels like we've it's been a, b- a bone that was healed incorrectly and the speakership being vacated was like the the beginning of the process of snapping resnapping that bone in order to set it it's like the you're right in, in 20 years since the 90s the all the United States government has been funded via either on the bus spending bills or continuing resolutions and for the first time since the 90 like th- that is not what the country and, and that, that's not the direction that the country should be, should be going on. We should not be just continuing to kick, kick the can down the road just because idiots voted on it last year. And what, I think what you specifically mean is that we don't, no one's accountable for the, everything is done in aggregate and in total. And there's like one vote for the whole budget. Yes. Nobody so ever, we're voting no, on things that we haven't read. And um, I have to say now, so this is something I definitely have to say. Cause you, look, you've brought up Matt Gates in the podcast before, and I will admit I had to discipline myself not to roll my eyes upon hearing guy's name. Okay, I have to admit that. This dude, I have to say, has met this moment in a very impressive fashion, and I highly recommend, if you haven't seen like his speech to Congress or his performance on like the Sunday, the Sunday show explaining his position. The speech he gave on the, on yeah. the steps to the— to the press corps outside the outside the house right after he after the vote had but was incredible like whatever you think of this guy right he he knows what he's talking about on this and he has met this moment with absolutely successfully yes he he laid the groundwork for this and he is executing which beautifully maybe that's the thing that is so unprecedented <laughs> competence right? yeah right but I, I you know we are psyoped we certainly were psyoped and a lot, you know, like to think that he was a lot dumber and not, certainly not as capable certainly. as he is. I had my, I, I had him in a sim- similar mental category as I had Tucker Carlson, and I just dismissed him. Um, same, same as like all of those Freedom Caucus members, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and like I have to because I have changed my opinion now of Matt Gates, and I've changed my opinion of Tucker Carlson. Like I have to extend some level of grace to other people that I have previously binned as idiots to be like, it's possible that I was psyoped and these people, it's possible they're idiots or it's possible they have, they're onto something why that has threatened some external force, which has caused them to lie to the public about them. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I heard Michael Saylor say this, like you go through history and at some point, like you realize the good guys, some of the good guys were actually the bad guys and the bad guys were the good guys. And you yeah, boy, really that's, know. You want to talk about like a moment of growing up is reali- yeah. realizing that, that. Oh, yeah. History is written by the victors, and it's, yeah, it's, it's And possible. it's not a static What a thing. coincidence. Yeah. The good guys have won every time. But good guys aren't static good guys. They, like, Matt Gates has met this moment, right? I don't know what he's doing right now. Right. But I know he's met this moment on this subject, and he's, he's done He's on the right side of the fence. Very but that doesn't mean he will always be on the right side of the fence. Yeah. You know what's funny about Tucker Carlson? Um, like, I— probably would have been very uh dismissive of him except in 2004 i uh <laughs> i attended something called the enrolled actuaries meeting which is um back when i was that was a professional organization and he was a keynote speaker 
2004. Wow. In 2004. So was that Crossfire Days? Yes. Okay. He, both he and the other guy, the bald guy that catchers mitt face. Right, that guy. Forgot his name. <laughs> but he really struck me as, like, brilliant. Like, you know, I, I really felt like I was in the presence of a brilliant guy. Um, you know, I know it was, it was a keynote and it was prepared, but I've seen a lot of keynotes, right? This dude, this, this one really kind of woke me up. It's like, this guy is different. Um, and he was arguing a point that I was that was against my political leanings at the time, but um, but he did it well enough that you had to respect him. Yeah, yeah. And so when he sort of like when Clown World intensified with him at the center of it, I mean, I really didn't like what he I didn't like what he represented, but at the time, right? Yeah, me too. You, know, you guys know where I was, but I kind of still had this seed where like, but this guy is a smart guy. Like I still had that seed, you know. I thought maybe he was co-opted. I I, I kind of just thought uh, maybe they got him. I think it, I think I probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but whatever. That's not going to stop me from saying it again. I think the thing that put me uh, onto Tucker Carlson really it was right around the time when he was booted from Fox and got got he was on Twitter now. Yeah. And I I took my uh, I took a member of my family to the airport who is very very con- uh, conflicting political views to my own. And this person called called Tucker Carlson uh, one of the most um, visible faces of the of the white supremacist movement and i i, I don't remember I, I think i just kind of laughed at the time and i just kind of brushed it off but then like driving home i was thinking about it, I was like really like there's people out th- like it's like this is that's so alien to my view of who he was like a white so that's I, i'm gonna have to watch him and find out why these people think he's so crazy <laughs> and so in watching yeah. him and starting like let's hear what the man himself has to say and it turns out that what the man has to say is not at all what people have been saying about him yeah, it's it's true. And interestingly, when I read the book The Real Anthony Fauci, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Tucker Carlson has a testimonial on the back of the book, and I remember thinking to myself, "Boy, couldn't he have done better? Couldn't he have just he could have?" And I read that book very skeptically because of that testimonial, um, which is maybe a good thing, right? But regardless, that's where my head was. At the yeah. Time. Boy, that book, that book is heavy. There's some... Anyway, we don't have to get into that. You want, you want to try to... Uh, well, since we're at a pause break right now, you want to uh, try to turn your camera back on, see if we have network? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Um, camera on. I got a letter from Xfinity this week. Uh-oh. And uh, they, they've it's informed never good. me... Well, actually, I mean, so it, it's it's mixed bag. They uh, they've informed me that in the next couple of weeks we're gonna have a network outage for a couple of days at some point because they're gonna be rolling out gigabit level speeds in our neighborhood. It's like okay, that's great because our internet blows right now. It's like we pay for a hundred mm. and we barely get that on the best of days. So it's like okay, you're gonna roll out gigabit. I will expect that maybe I can get a hundred megs then. Sweet. <laughs> All right, that's good news. You guys, you guys <laughs> probably have awesome internet out. Out towards the coast, and uh, you're you're in Xfinity countries, but you're in their backyard, Comcast. You know what, though? Um, not that anyone in this podcast gives a shit, but like when I was, we I worked in Center City, Philadelphia, like three three buildings down from Comcast's building, and our internet was absolute shit. We used to complain about it all the time in the irony. So I don't I don't know how much any of that actually matters. You know what's interesting? So like the where the world is right now. Any time now I have any sort of, like, internet hiccup, it's like the internet turns off or 
my like my Apple Maps re like routes me weirdly, or like I get in the Tesla and the, te the Tesla takes me in a way that I'm not expecting, my brain immediately goes to, oh, this is it, we're being hacked. It's like chi China's got us. Oh, they're, oh yeah. they've they've changed the GPS by like one degree and they're fucking everything up. It's like that. It's interesting. It's an extension that, of everyone's a Fed and yeah, everyone's right. a scammer. Yeah, so the, everyone's a Fed. Said, everyone's a scammer. You read the uh, the real Anthony Fauci book from a place of skepticism. It's like I've. That has been so incorporated into my personality at this point that it's just, yeah. Any hiccup is like, oh, this is this is potentially planned. There's an agent provocateur yeah. around here somewhere. And by the way, my sense of skepticism wasn't for like the messaging of what any of the content was. It was I was just like kind of looking for that Republican agenda somehow. You were looking, yeah, yeah. right. Because if you see that, that you're like, okay, you can bin this content because you see what the author is saying. It really puzzled me that, like, at the time, like, that he had to reach so far to, like, I'm sure he had a lot of testimonials. Like, why? And now I kind of get why he included, I get why he included Tucker Tucker's on his book. But at the time, it felt like, why would he do that? Yeah. He probably had so many better ones. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. It was, it was, a, it seems like a strategic move. He knew which direction he was going. Yeah, I mean, yeah, RFK and Tucker are definitely have their fingers up to the wind. Very interesting. I, I, so I have two potential, three potential topics I wouldn't mind getting what are, into. What are they? Um, okay, so one is an argument I had on Twitter called, Does Price Matter? Okay. Uh, one is a, um, another argument I had about, well, it's not an argument, it's more of a conversation about what do drawdowns look like in bull markets versus bear markets? And then the other one would be Mike's right now I'm in the lightning protocol development seminar and just have sort of a lot of views on how li on lightning. <laughs> I want to talk about number two. What do drawdowns in bear markets look like versus bull markets? Okay. Got it. So this came up on our Thursday zoom. Um, and <clears throat> I actually hope those guys are listening. This is, I talk about this because I respect you guys in battle and these ideas are sticking with me and I still want, like I still need to talk about it to flesh out whether or not I think I'm right, but like yeah. I just need to talk about it. Yeah. And so that's, this is, this isn't me rubbing in the fact that I think I'm right. This is like me saluting you guys and respecting you guys enough to want to continue to yeah, let's hash it litigate out. this. Okay. So the idea was that now, so the idea was, okay, so, Bitcoin will rot. Bitcoin, you know, price will rise, and then at some point, um, it'll it, rise so much that it it'll cause has to correct back down a bit. Obviously, right? So, it, but but it'll but I mean, and it's really a question of degree. And it was the the i the idea that got put forth was just more that so you know it's so many people are going to just sell to, and it, maybe this is a analog to the same argument of does price matter but like so many people are going to sell in at a high price to become wealthy right like and and you know like who can resist right who can absolutely resist that um you know nobody right everybody needs and, a new phone eventually but this isn't about getting a new phone right this is about having ex realizing the generational wealth Right. Like Bitcoin goes to a million. That was, I think, the example. Bitcoin goes to a million in a year or something like that. And everyone is just now everyone who has a Bitcoin is now super wealthy. Right. Mm -hmm. 
they're going to sell it. That's the, the idea is they're going to sell it and then they're going to crash the price. Okay, right. That, that's the idea. Right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that's wrong at all. What yeah, I'm no, saying... So what, that doesn't what seem I, right to me. Well, it will lower the price. Sure. Like, I think that's true, right? I think that obviously when people sell their Bitcoin, right, when people sell their Bitcoin to take profits, it will lower the price. I don't, right? I mean, that's that's a natural phenomenon. Markets. I think there's nuance there. You're right. Like, yeah. th- there's multiple. It's how are you selling, quote unquote, how are you selling your Bitcoin? So. That's great. And so that was a, one of the things we had a hard time getting across, which is that inside a circular economy doesn't hit exchange and actually is like, you know, not going to really impact anything. You actually give somebody a Bitcoin for a car, it's not going to impact price unless that person turns around and sells it on the exchange. But like inside of a circular economy, you're never hitting the exchange. So that's a great point. That was the first great point. Okay. Right. Second one was I just said, let's look at what happens in a bear market just by contrast. Okay. In a bear market, you have macro pressure making everybody poorer. And so right. what they do, what everybody does is they find... They to pull some value out of Bitcoin slowly. They find the most liquid asset they have, which is, which is Bitcoin, and they sell it. Or they get forced liquidated. They run out of shares mass, to sell and have to sell some Bitcoin. Right. You see forced liquidations, right? Because right, that's that they, they can't even you know they can't even do anything Your taxes about it. Due. So you need money, yeah. You got to got to so sell something. That to me explains the majority of when we see an eighty percent drawdown. Right, the majority of it are people who just can't hold. Right, they can't hold on any longer. Okay. okay. Right. Whereas it's more of a luxury to sell your Bitcoin to gain the wealth. It's more of it's not hap- It's not a widespread. It's, it's just not as widespread. Right in a bull market, unless you know, over time, stronger hands should be holding the Bitcoin. And actually, the premise of this paper again, I'm going to mention it again orange is the new green is that you can actually, there actually is a legitimate yield to be gained by hodling. And there's hodl wave charts um, in the paper that show that people have held in a really um, unusually for any market, right. People yeah. have held Bitcoin through those drawdowns. You know, it's like in- the- inevitably, yeah, B- Bitcoin is being spread out to the strongest hands over time. Um, but I, I, yeah, like the central defining characteristic of a bull market is that the the selling pressure is less than the buying pressure. So more people are using it to store their value than are trying to suck their value out of it. Yeah, that's going to translate into the U.S. dollar price goes up. Then eventually you're going to reach some equilibrium where there's oh, people. it gets to a dollar price where you have enough people that are holders of it that decide, hey, I want X, Y, or Z. Like, I want a house, I want a car, uh, or like I have. And once that uh, market demand outweighs, that's the like the balance back. And it swings it's, back down. You know what it is? It's a matter, it really is a matter of whether or not Bitcoin is in stronger hands than it was in the last bull market. Right. So right. If somehow it flowed to way weaker hands. They're going to sell. Which actually is kind of what we observed maybe in, you know. With BlackRock. If the, whatever well, Bitcoin they acquire, yeah. Certainly in the shitcoin era and the BlockFi Celsius, Terra Luna, right? I mean, we saw a lot of, 
we you know we certainly saw a lot of weak-handed dominance, right? Yeah. Um, that's dollar chasing. Well, right, and so that that's why I think the question of does price actually matter. That's a more interesting question, in my opinion. I mean, this is something, this was a good question, and it kind of teases out, I think, teases out a good thinking about how markets work. But does price actually matter to begin with, right? I think is a more interesting question. And this is some, a bit of a battle that I ended up in a very long thread with, with a few people. But, like, the thing was, I gave my initial answer. Mm-hmm which I think covered, literally covered every example and every rebuttal just kind of agreed with my initial answer. And so my initial answer was, if you're short, it matters. Okay, got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here trying to think like, where do I come down and this doesn't matter? It's if like you're I'm... short and you're exposed, so if you're short, obviously you care because if price goes down, you're gonna get liquidated, right? If you and then I back in and I say, if you actually care, you may not be short, but you actually might be without realizing. Yeah, I mean, you might like be the, short. You know, you have expenses and you may only be overallocated. The only time that I care about the price of Bitcoin is when we have some kind of financial event that is so great that I'm going to have to convert some and create a 1099. That's when I care. And then, then I'm all universally, it's like, God damn it, Bitcoin is, is only 40 grand. Bitcoin is only 30 grand. It's like... So, yeah, I mean, people were saying you don't understand. Uh, some people have bills to pay. I was like, no, I do understand. I'm just saying you are sh- that's you are short. Yeah, if you have bills to pay in fiat and you haven't taken, if you're not saving, you don't fiat have to pay to those bills. Powder to play those, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you don't yeah. have the, that's, it not, doesn't mean you're wrong or bad, bad Bitcoin or blah blah blah. It just means you're short and you care about the price. Yeah, you're exposing yourself to, to you're putting yourself in a position where you have to care about the price. The U.S. unless you have right. Once you get into the Bitcoin circular economy, yeah, I care. You you care less because you're not robbing energy back out of the yeah. system whenever you make a transaction. I th- I think what I learned is that just a lot more people do care about it than I think it was meant to be some kind of intellectual circle jerk on Twitter that like because you know people love to say I don't care about price and yeah. you know sort of a reaction, but um, you know it is an interesting question that reveal I do think sort of reveals um, the time preference the average time preference of people which maybe also reflect the strong handedness of people right I mean this is one of those questions you can use to to, to test your fellow Bitcoiners because you can find out where their brains are well yeah I mean I think people should use it to test themselves like "Hmm, I'm caring a lot about price I wonder if that means I'm actually I have enough cash in, in the I have enough actual cash you know what I mean? Maybe I should just stockpile a little more cash. It's because I feel short Bitcoin, yeah. right? I, I don't like the feeling of worrying, of having to worry about the price. Maybe I feel right? like when people are into Bitcoin long enough, we like we start to virtue signal. Ah, the price doesn't matter. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. But and I mean, in the back of our brains, we're all we're all vaguely aware of the price of Bitcoin. It's, you can't divorce yourself from it. Yeah, but on the ground, dude, like. I've said this, that time preference, you know, we all want to have a low time preference and sometimes we actually achieve one, but those are not permanent. It's not a permanent state. So if you live, this is where I I tried to toy around with terminology like a risk preference, like a low time, like if you don't have the kind of life that can preserve a low time preference, you're going to find yourself short. Yeah. Right. 
I think that's one of the things I'm most thankful with about my Bitcoin path is that when I found Bitcoin, I just happened to be in a position where I could like my life was very well structured to not have already have made like mistakes, other fiat mistakes. Like when, when I had my 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 orange orange light bulb moment, I, I was able to then, OK, what does my next five years look like? Like, can I stack? Can I live small and stack hard for years? Yeah, I can. It's like and some people can't do that because they already have liabilities they have to pay. Which is another way of saying you're short, right? So having liabilities means means you're short. You're long fiat, you know, right? Long fiat, short, whatever it, assets it, you're holding. Until you right? have that mental switch, and then you're on the Bitcoin standard. I mean, there's you're not. I mean, you're not short on fiat because people live their entire lives. Like, oh no, this is smart debt. This is good debt. It's like that. Any debt is you're you're taking out a you're taking an opposing position on Bitcoin if you have any debt. So yeah, I'm not saying that's, that right. that's bad. I have debt. I have a small amount of debt, but. Like you can't look at, de- I mean, Bitcoin forces you to view debt under the prop. In fact, like maybe, maybe before Bitcoin, I mean, I guess before fiat, this was, this was more evident, but since fiat and growing up in the fiat era, like, I don't think that a lot of people even have the capacity to understand economics because they are poisoned by the, ve- the fundamental foundational layer of fiat. It's like until you can wrap your mind around scarcity, like can you under, can you properly price things? Can you have have can you be short if you're pricing things in a in a currency that's devaluing? It's like it's, it's like so that was everything. Not, so this that reminds me of another good point that was made, which was just like the price is. I say the price is an indicator of their cooperation. Hmm. Um. I mean, the truth is there is no price. Like it is, they, so the, oh, sorry, the point that was made was it's a scoreboard, right? Okay. Which I like that. I like, but I think that a true market price would be a scoreboard, but they manipulate the price, right? So we could win and XBT USD could go to zero. Those two things can happen in the same world, right? Mm-hmm. Where they just refuse, we win and they refuse to cooperate. Right, they just right. refuse to cooperate. Right, never acknowledge Bitcoin. No one ever takes Bitcoin, and then Bitcoiners never take dollars. Well, I mean, there, we have our own economy. Who gives a shit that there the price will be is zero? parts of the world that do that and refuse Bitcoin? But I mean, they're what they're going to be encouraging a jurisdictional arbitrage for their tax base to leave to go elsewhere. So, so the jurisdiction that matters is the U.S. Right, XBTUSD is the price we're talking about. And should the U.S. just decide to never cooperate at all costs? Go full draconian lockdown kind of stuff. The price, the XBT USD will probably go to zero. But yet it won't matter to us. Right? I mean, right. It, it, yeah. Once you're pricing things in sats, it, it won't it, matter to it really us. It doesn't will, matter what the price of dollars is. So what I, that's why I'm saying, like, so as a scoreboard, it's very, it doesn't work because it, is very manipulatable still because of the amount of power they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a measure of cooperation, right, the NGU implies that cooperation. And even the manipulation that they can do in Bitcoin is unprecedented compared to other markets because yeah. enter, enter Bitcoin, the discovery of digital scarcity, every other market, they can fuck with the other side of the, de- the denominator. So like in Bitcoin, it's it's infinity divided by 21 million. Every other market, it's, uh, okay, so infinity, the money printer, divided by infinity. Like, 
every other market. Oh, you want more gold? We can go mine more gold. Gold gets valuable enough, we'll pull it out of the goddamn seawater. Well, they don't have water. to mine more gold. They just need to re write more certificates right. for but the, as I, and, the non-gold that we own because it can't be audited. The gold supply can't be audited. So that And it's so interesting because that, you know, the gold market could be manipulated forever. Because, I think the point that I was making, right. though, is that like people like to classify Bitcoin as a commodity, whereas it's fine to do that from a legal perspective. So the feds have some way to view it. But I mean, even like Bitcoin's not a commodity, like commodities, you can like, oh, oil gets super valuable. You can go drill more oil wells. Is I it, don't Bit like it as a commodity. So it does share some properties of commodities. It shares some properties of a lot of things. Yeah, but it's, it's something fact, new. I mean... You know, this is one of those things where when we want to determine a price, we want to call it a commodity. When we want to um, preserve our gains and not just pay, ta not be taxed on our purchasing power, right? We want to say it's just data, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and yeah, and it's it's forcing a re us to redefine all of these words that we've been using in this terrible legacy system. It's like enter this new thing that doesn't match any of what we've tried to build. Capital gains is worse than inflation, in my opinion. It's not more corrupt, but it's a worse fate on my value. 40% right? versus 9%? Yeah, I mean, inflation is more of a global... Like, inflation is what causes the... Um, the elimin like there's You can't buy a ribeye anymore because it, like, it literally doesn't exist. And the melting of the ice cube. They're substituted. Well, it's not that it's more expensive. It's just like you can't even get a good one anymore because mm. because it's, you know, the incentive. There's just no incentive. Like you, well, I'll say a better example is you can't go out to dinner anymore because the incentives are to it's make it expensive. as cheap as possible. Yeah, right. There's, there's certain products out there that are just, there's not a lot of them because of how much energy and money it takes to make them. Like mega yachts. There aren't a billion mega yachts on the planet for every person because mega yachts take an absurd amount of resources to, to construct them. It's like dryers. So as we're measuring, yeah, dryers. So, but as, so as the price of money is changing and shrinking, as the dollar is shrinking in value, we're, everything is going to get priced like a mega yacht. No, like nobody can afford the phones anymore because only the ultra-rich can afford a phone because but, of how much energy it takes to make the phone. So a dryer is a good example. So I have a dryer that is 15 years old. And um, last year, there was no way for me to open and close the door of it without removing the door entirely. Right, the door is like, door is like twenty pounds, right? And it's, so you have to. It's it's quite an ordeal to just remove the door and put it back on every time I want to do a load. But guess what? The idea of buying a new dryer never crossed my mind because it is. It works. No, it's not that it works. It's like you can't. It's not available. I could, even without a door, this thing is going to be better for uh. longer. You understand? Like you can't. I, there's nowhere I could go to get this dryer. Right, you can't do it. I you know what I'm saying? Uh, like it doesn't exist. So yeah, similarly, I, I don't I don't have appliances on on that age, but I, I've learned how to repair my own appliances and like the most common failure modes be for that very reason. It's it's easier. I, it's like, I paid why a guy. Why would I buy a new yeah, one? I paid a guy to fix the door and everything, and that's that's like like that for me is like of course I'm gonna do that because I cannot like this is there's there will never be another opportunity to own a dryer. So is your dryer older than your house? You brought this dryer from like your previous. <coughs> Sorry about that. This dryer came with the house, and I'm guessing it was roughly the same age. Okay, interesting. So the house I'm in is about 20-ish years old. 
All right, and this this came with with the house. Gotcha. Well, yeah. I mean, right when you have those, when you identify those items that are hardy enough that don't they don't need to be maintained on a like the regular maintenance cycle. Yeah, you're. It's like, why would you get rid of that? It's foolish. But so the point is, the this like the illusion of CPI is that, you know, everything you want in life is still available. It's just a lot more expensive, and it's not true. It's just untrue, right? Fiat ruins everything, and the the quality of things we used to have are not decreases. More, it's not that it's more expensive. It's gone. Right. right. If you want to go to a restaurant. And, you, you know, they're going to cook everything in industrial oils and you're going to be lucky if you even get real meat somewhere. Like, you just can't do it if you care about your health, right? The reason For we the most part. drywall instead of stone. For the most part. You just, it's just, so, and CPI, right? It's a fucking scam, right? It's just, you know, it's a scam where you, it tracks a fake price of, ignores substitutes. It ignores the fact that, we're no longer buying a ribeye anymore. You're no yeah. longer, you're not even trying to buy the same thing at a higher price, right? You're buying whatever is available and everything is interchangeable. Um, and then this goes back, I guess, you know, it's not to get into it now, but like, I mean, why do we have um, the foods that we have? We're, it goes back to wanting, it goes back to the price of food being too expensive back, you know. Yeah. This is, the- this is a long, long legacy of, this is a long legacy of things. So, you know, the, going back to this price matter, you know, like, yeah, you got to, you know, it matters when you got to buy food, right? It, ma- it, it, it matters. All these things matter. But, like, not, you know, price itself isn't going to stop this train of substitutes and fiat ruining everything. It's really fiat has to be destroyed. And that's why you got to hang on for dear life. Yeah, yeah. We're off the map. And boy, do we keep getting further from that, that the mapped area. Yeah, and then you know maybe if I was gonna say one do go one last direction, it's another sort of similar it's another similar conversation we had on the Thursday chat. But it's um, you know the more I the closer I get in the lightning, and the more I see in the it like this idea of. Um, Bitcoin as a uncensorable, privacy-focused um, protocol, right, is going to be really, I think, really challenging. <coughs> right. I don't so think people. Bitcoin is you, as private as the steps you take to be. Yeah, I'm now it's just like I'm imagining if in ten years people just want their pensions, their Bitcoin pensions, they're not going to like care if they have to whitelist coins and shit like that they are not going to give a shit so like i don't think we can um, hang on to some fantasy that everyone is going to be super based but maybe it only matters that enough people are i love that we just need enough people to be based to save the planet it's the concept how you only needed like 13 percent of the population to rise up and revolt for the american revolution it's like it's a, you only need a small yeah. amount of people to, to stand up for what they believe in to make real change in the world. The amount of people we needed for Bitcoin to be created was is probably countable on your hands and toes. Right. Yeah. I mean, and Satoshi and then all of the uh, 
the inputs to his white paper? I would say I would I would throw in the uh, you know the people who are his contemporaries, the way dies, who yes is cited, but like the David Choms, the you know the Zabos, all the, and I know a lot of them are cited. A lot yeah. of them are cited in the way, but the, I'd say his contemporaries, the cypherpunks, the people who are working on that, you know, and it's probably less than 20 people really who would say, you know, claim a principal component to Bitcoin, whereas if they never existed, would Bitcoin have still happened, right? It's, it's like the idea of a, of a lever and a fulcrum. Like it's, a, it's, it's the quality of your tool. If you have a tool yeah. that's powerful enough that you need fewer people to wield it and bitcoin was a tool that was so powerful that it only took yeah like 20 20 people to to move the world so maybe the way we end this is close it from where we started it which is if you understand what blackrock is trying to do right it may not matter that much that they're gonna first of all we can you know raise your hand if you can stop blackrock from buying a million bitcoin yeah, you can't do it. So Bitcoin's for enemies. And you can't help the fact that they are now going to, you know, they're going to bring um, probably like 10x people in that don't have the values we have, right? But maybe it only matters that enough people hold it down. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Let's go! King Kong, here we come, running through the door, don't wait long, don't